The name Gary Katz is legendary in the music world and synonymous with the music of Steely Dan. He admits that his longevity as a sought-after producer has nothing really to do with his musical abilities, but his gift for discovering great talent along with his ears. He's a pro at knowing how to help good artists become great artists and also how to make every record a great one. That's what has made Katz one of the best producers in the business for years. As an A&R guy in his early career, he helped sign the likes of Jim Croce, Dire Straits, Prince, Ricky Lee Jones, Christopher Cross, and of course, Steely Dan. Inside Music Cast welcomes an ever-present force in the music business, Gary Katz. Hey Gary, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's good to be here with you guys. Thanks. Hey, you know, when uh, you think back over the course of your life, and you know, maybe focusing on your early days in Brooklyn, you know, listening to some of that early rock and roll. I think I've read that you were kind of into Fats Domino and Chuck Berry. You know, I'm guessing that, you know, you wanted nothing more than to be a part of the music industry in some way. But did you ever imagine achieving, you know, the level of uh, success and respectability you've garnered throughout your career? Not when I was 13, sitting on my rooftop <laughs> smoking cigarettes, listening to Bo Diddley. Right. <laughs> but as time went by, I had a very close friendship my, I grew up with a group called Jay and the Americans. Right. And we were all, we were always together. So when they started to have hits, which they did, and they were young, you, you know, we were 18, 19, they started to go to the studio well, where we all went together. And my, I made a trip there with uh, them. Uh, Lieber and Stoller actually produced their first two records. Right, right. Which many people don't realize. But I got mm-hmm. to go to the studio and watch them work. And for whatever reason, they befriended me. Mm-hmm. And apart from the sessions that the guys would go to, they said to me, "You know, if you're around and we're recording, and you want to come by, well, they made my they were my favorite writers and producers. They made Drifter records and Coaster records, and yep. they were just you know they were what I really wanted to hear. So I went there, and I would watch them work. And Mike, who's a really fine musician. You know, he sort of interacted with the band, and Jerry would sit there, and he would say, no, I don't like that. Tell them to do something, you know, like this. He didn't know anything about music to speak of. He was a great writer, and a produ- he had worked with his ear. And watching them work, I, you know, I realized that I could actually do this like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it gave me a sense of... Um, confidence that if I could just find the right place for myself, you know, I sort of could work without being a really great musician, which I certainly am not. That, that leads me to uh, another question, though, because I'm curious about your own musical upbringing. And, and uh, did, you, did you play? Did you learn an instrument as, uh, you know? I learned, you... a p- I, I was learning piano. This is now, you have to remember, this is before, I can't stand up saying this, but before... <laughs> That's Domino and Chuck Berry, so you can use your own you know, <laughs> calendar to figure it out. <laughs> so the music that they were teaching me, this woman who would come to the house, it, it, it held no interest for me. I did it because, I don't know, my mother was a good musician. Uh-huh. I played, I was, you know, I was young, and they, I remember she would keep making me play Malaguena. Uh-huh. And it was okay, yeah. and at some point... I just didn't want to do that anymore, and it was probably right around that time that I started to hear, you know, Alan Freed on the radio, and I said, you know, I don't want to play this. Can I play this? Well, she had no idea what I was even talking about. (laughs) So I basically stopped there after I'd lost interest, and over the years, you know, I picked up a guitar, and I can go in my room and lock both the bottom and top lock and play a little for myself, but I'm Mm -hmm. not really musically trained. I have over the years learned how to you know, read a score and follow music and so forth, but I can't play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Weren't you a, uh, uh, I think you were a phys ed major, right, when you were in school? Oh, some of you, you're good, yeah. I was a phys ed major at yeah. NYU with, uh, who was in like Happy Heston, who went on to play for many years for the Lakers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Happy Heston, um, yeah. And that's all I did till I was, you know, old enough to realize I wasn't going to be 6'4", and so those dreams went. <laughs> and I, I was going to be a coach. Yeah. And, um, one thing led to another, and I wound up not being able to finish, and I got a job and so forth and so on, and I wanted to be in the music business, and I opened a company with Richard Perry. Yeah, and okay. I, 
grew up, we had a mutual friend, and we were in Brooklyn, and our mothers each gave us $4,000, and we opened an office in 1650 Broadway. Okay. And which was like the sister to the Brill Building. Yeah, yeah. And at that time, it was more the home of where the new music was being done, mm-hmm. much like it was ASCAP and BMI, the Brill Building with traditional publishers and so right. forth. And yeah. 1650, you know, after 5 o'clock, the foundation wasn't quite on the ground. <laughs> and we did that for a while, and then I got a job with Bobby Darren. Right. And, um, you know, I got one thing led to another, and I got fortunate. Yeah. Hey, before uh, you moved on to, or took your jobs at uh, at A&R, a job at, at Dunhill, you know, you um, used the pseudonym Cannon. Now, your last name is actually Katz. How did you actually get to, to use that name, uh, Cannon? Where did that come from? When Richard and I had our company called Cloud9 Productions, mm-hmm. we were next door, literally next door to like one of the most successful production companies at the time. It was called Kama Sutra. Okay. And and they were they had the Loving Spoonful, right, and the right. Laws, and they were really a, a, a successful friends of ours. So they threw us work, bones, but work. Yeah. And they you know had some bands, and they said go in and do a couple of tracks, and Richard and I would go and we. You know, sort of learned what we were doing. Um, so all the records we did then, all the guys had pseudonyms. Okay. All the guys in Jane the Americans, you know, one Rosenberg became Vance, one Yaguda <laughs> became Dean, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And so, you know, I was out of place. I didn't have a name. So somebody said, you know, Gary Cannon. I said, okay, Gary Cannon. And I used that name. When I moved to California, the, oh. almost the first thing I did my wife at the time said, you know, you haven't had such great luck with that. Why don't you just use your name? Yeah, yeah. And I did. And that was it. <laughs> and that was it, yeah. I thought, there was gonna that. Be, I thought there was going to be more of a mysterious sort of uh, story yeah. behind Cannon. Well, if you were with me on those trips, it was more mysterious to me than it was. <laughs> you could have really lied to us big time if you wanted to get I could have lied, you're right. <laughs> well, a second ago, you mentioned uh, your, your affiliation with Jay and the Americans. And, uh, uh-huh. You know, like you said, you, you kind of had your first introduction and in education in the studio with those guys, but what, what I wasn't quite sure about was how you met Jay and the Americans. How did you meet? Uh, uh, we went to high school together. I mean, okay. Okay. Uh, Howie and, and I went to high school together, and, you know, we were 14, and Howie's best friend at the time was Sandy, and Sandy's best friend was, and we were just, we grew up through school and all these years since, many, being really close. I saw Sandy uh, Sunday night. We're going to chat more about your history with Donald Fagan and Walter Becker later, but um, you know, ironically, speaking of speaking of Jay and the Americans, the two of those guys actually toured as part of uh, their band in the early seventies. And, and had you already connected with Fagan and Becker during their stint with Jay and the Americans? Well, Donald and Walter had been walking around, having left Bard, and they were looking, you know, walking in and out of the Brill Building where Jay and the Americans had an office, uh-huh. and one of them, Marty. I think it was, they went in and they played some songs and Marty liked them a lot and he called Kenny and Kenny liked them a lot and they were just doing some things together and because of that, I met Donald and Walter because they had met, um, well, Jamie America. Okay. Yeah. Hey, hey Gary, um, you once worked with, in fact, you mentioned a few minutes ago about working with Bobby Darren and... um, well, I didn't work with him. I worked for him. Okay, he owned a publishing him. company gotcha. in New York, a well-known company called TM Music. Mm-hmm. But but this was sort of the time, you know, he became politically active and became heavily involved in, in Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. So, you know, your your time working with him was was sort of short-lived in a way because, of course, he, he was killed. But but Darren basically backed away from, from everything, sold his companies and, and all, you know. Uh, I was one of the employees of those companies, so right. I understand. Yes, yeah. exactly what happened. You know, what kind of work were you doing with Bobby at that we time? We were, you know, we this was another, you know, really early point. And, mm-hmm. you know, at that point they wanted us. I worked with a really close friend of mine named Eddie Lambert, who went on to be a very successful publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted us to plug songs. I mean, this is still the time when people were plugging songs. Yeah, right. It doesn't go on anymore. But, you know, they would own a catalog. In this case, they owned um, a Buffy St. Marie's catalog, who was a popular artist and writer at the time. Uh-huh. 
and a few others, Van McCoy, who was a very popular artist and writer. And all they wanted us to do was have somebody, an artist, they thought could sell records, record a song that was in the catalog. So that's what we would do. It wasn't very interesting to me. I didn't like it, and I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a job. Yeah, yeah. Was it at that point where, you know, you, you know, I, we read that um, you know you were out of work and you didn't know really what, what your next gig was going to be, really? And that's, that, that's literal. Yeah. That's and, true. Well, when Bobby sold the company, right? you know, we were sort of out of luck. I didn't have enough of a resume to actually get a job, although I almost did mm-hmm. Mercury, but I didn't. And yeah, I was hoping and waiting to see how I'd get a job again. Yeah, so you cross paths with, um, I believe, is Eddie Lambert from from Dunhill Records. And, Absolutely. Well, uh, Eddie is Dennis's brother from Dunhill as well. Yeah. Okay, and uh, he encouraged you to to write a letter. Tell us about that letter to Jay Lasker. Uh, he called Eddie called me one night. I was watching Monday Night Football and just you know sort of not in a good place. I uh, wasn't sure how I had it. I was married and I had a, a son. Right. I had been doing odd jobs that I really didn't like. And Eddie called me and said, "So this guy got fired in the office today. Write the president a letter and I'll go talk to him." Mm-hmm. Okay. And I said, "You want me to write?" a cold letter to a guy. He said, yeah, just write the letter and I'll go talk to him. Well, yeah. I didn't really want to. I said, okay, Ed, no, no. I didn't really want to do it. I wasn't in a great place. And again, my wife at the time said, you know, what do you have to lose? And just kept basically, you know, nagging me for long enough for me to take a yellow pad and a pen and, and hand wrote, this is pre-computer, of course. Right, yeah. right. Uh, dear Jay, writing this letter to you right now is a much bigger pain in the ass for me than it is for you right. sitting in your chair reading it. <laughs> and I work with two guys who I think are it. If you're interested, give me a call. Thanks again. And he called me three days later yeah. and said, I'm still laughing at your letter. I have no <laughs> idea who you are. There's a ticket at the airport. Be here in the morning. I'll see you at 11. Right. Wow. Yeah. And I got a job at 12. Awesome. That's, that's a little <laughs> just like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously impressed. Give us an idea as to what your first encounter with Don and Walt was like. I mean, did, did you guys hit it off right away? Do you, do you remember the conversation you had when you first met those guys? I was uh, in another studio in New York, Record Plant, and I was making my... I, I got a job. After Bobby sold the company... Uh-huh. The person who ran the company and managed Bobby, his name was Ed Burton. He was a very nice old guy, really nice. And he called Hugo and Luigi, who were very famous producers, all the Sam Cooke records. And uh-huh. They ran RCA for years, very well known. They were sort of a count, you know, another side of Lieber and Stola. Right, mm-hmm. right. And very well known. Mm-hmm. They opened a company with the movie producer, Joseph E. Levine, called AFCO Embassy. Okay. And Ed called them, and I went over there, and I was the first employee, and they didn't have any records, and I, produ- I was producing a record by Eric Mercury, a Canadian. We got a lot of PR, it's called Electric Blackman, who's a fabulous artist and still is. Okay. And we worked at the record plant on 45th Street. We worked from noon to midnight, and exactly at midnight, we would leave, and waiting outside the door was Jimi Hendrix and a bunch of, you know, family, like 12 people, including young kids, Yeah, all, all tie-dyed. They would all go in the studio. We would leave, and most nights, Merck and I would sit outside the door and just listen, because he had the entire room full of stacked marshals. Holy cow. So, Wow. We would just sit there and listen <laughs> one night. And then Kenny, who's one of the guys in Jane, the Americans, he was making demos with Donald and Walter. Okay. And we we were really, we were very close friends. We lived near each other. So instead of taking two cars in, we, usually, we drove one car in, and we would go home together. So I called and I said, I'm done. Are you ready? He said, no, I'm running a little late tonight. Why don't you come here and we'll go home from here? And it was like four or five blocks away. I walked over to that studio. And Donald and Walter were there. 
playing with a couple of guys, Denny Diaz, actually. Okay. A couple of other guys. Yeah. And they were playing whatever it was. I liked it. It was weird. It wasn't <laughs> like Steely Dan. Okay. It was cool. And so I listened that night. Denny and I left. I went home. The next night or two, I kept going back to the studio because, you know, we would go home together. And over, you know, a pretty short period of time, Donald Walter and I got friendly. So you ended up taking that job at Dunhill, and it was uh, it was you that convinced the powers to be there to hire Donald and Walt, I think, as staff writers. And and I was thinking about this, you know, being young and, and a new employee at this company, you know, bringing in any artist is not only an opportunity for, for greatness, but, but your credibility, you know, is also on the line if they fail. But, you know, were you met with any resistance when you brought Don and Walt on board there? No, ABC Dunhill was a record company. It'd be hard to compare it to anything anyone would know today. It wasn't uh-huh. like that. Okay. It was a very small, really creative marketing promotion building. Okay. And I think there were 28 artists. So the percentage of success was ridiculous. Right. And the level of success, you know, Mamas and Papas or Three Dog Night or Grassroots or, I mean, just Steppenwolf, just right. huge records yeah. with only a few artists. It was a really, it was a terrific place. Wow. And the A&R person was Steve Barry, who produced all the Grassroots records. Hamilton Joe Frank wrote many hits with P.F. Sloan, and he was a very pop oriented, creative person. Grassroots being an example of what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But lots of hits, Tommy Rowe, I mean, top five records. So when I had my meeting with Jay that morning at 11, he, he, he came from Brooklyn. His associate, Howard Stark, came from Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn. For whatever reason, we hit it off. He said, you know, I like you a lot, but you got to go down and see Steve. Mm-hmm who he relied 99% of his company on whatever Steve said. Hmm. Well, Steve's taste in mine for record-making, although I really appreciated what he did and certainly the hits, it wasn't my style of what I would do, what I wanted to do for me. Yeah. And I had no... The only thing I had of Donald and Walters were a couple of the demos that they did with Kenny. Okay. In those nights when I said I would go by the studio. Right, right. And I loved them. And if you were a Steely fan, you might love them. They were weird. There were some when you say, odd tracks. When you say they weird. Were odd. They weren't constructed okay. you know, in the same way Steely was. They, you know, it, they weren't records like that. Okay. They were, they were cool. There was four guys, you know, bass, drums, guitar, whatever, keyboard. They played. Donald didn't sing. There were a couple of songs he did, but he was a very reluctant singer. Okay. Basically, just wanted to write and play. Mm-hmm. So I had two tracks, and I met Steve, and you know, hi, how are you? And he was from the Bronx, you know, which is you know, when you're in LA, it's almost like a neighbor. It's not quite like that here, Brooklyn and Bronx, but when you're there, it is. And we got along, and he said, "So let me hear what you got." And I took out these two tracks. They were on a you know, like a quarter-inch reel of tape. He listened. The first track ends, and he says. These guys are the Beatles. Wow. <laughs> well, to go, well, whatever you just said, <laughs> just imagine what I said. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And I'm serious. It did, he didn't take two beats and said, wow, these guys are the Beatles. Wow. I, I was like, how could you know that? But he did. Wow. Yeah, it's true. So it wasn't your original question, which I sort of went off. No, <laughs> no, 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 that's so it cool. It was not difficult at all. Mm-hmm. Once I played one song to Steve, mm-hmm who said that, and I, he said, well, what is it? Is it a band? Is it this? Is it that? We weren't a band. We were nothing. We were two guys writing songs, didn't know what it was. Yeah. De- Denny was a player with them. We all loved Denny. Well, they did. I was getting to know Denny. And he said, so what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. i got, I got to get him out here. He said, well, well, how about maybe they'll write songs for us. Let's put them on staff writing, and they'll write songs for, like, you know, my things. Right, right. I, I, I knew that wasn't going to work, but I said, yeah, that would be good. <laughs> so they came out. He paid them, I think it was 150 a week. They were part of Dunhill Publishing. And they wrote songs for Steve, for his acts, Hamilton Joe and Grassroots, 
for a very short period of time. And Steve realized, you know, that that, that really wasn't going to be a good marriage. Yeah. And in the same conversation, I said, so let me do this. Let me put a band together. Let me blah, blah, blah. Let me... And he said, okay, do what you want to do. And mm-hmm. we did. Wow. You know, I, I thought this was kind of funny. I, I read this somewhere, but uh, when those guys first came to L.A., Donald and Walt, uh, that was actually the first time they'd ever been out there, and, and neither one of them knew how to drive. And, and I think you actually had to chauffeur them around while they were learning how to drive and getting their licenses. Well, let's go further than that. They didn't know <laughs> how to drive. Walter should not be allowed on the road, and Donald didn't want to drive. So it wasn't until, because until was like nine years later. Amazing. Oh, nine years? <laughs> well, by the time, well, Donald always said, I can't drive, because I listened to the to the base, and I just keep tapping my foot to the base. Something <laughs> bad will happen. I shouldn't drive. <laughs> Which That's I just good. think was a, you know, another yeah. way of me not being able to argue with him about it, so I would keep driving, which I did <laughs> for years. That's funny. Hey, you know, you, you produced the band's first seven albums from 1972 through 1980, and you were essentially the, the th- you know, in my mind, you were essentially the third member of the band during this time. I mean, you were, you were very integral in, in their success and what they were doing, but tell me, tell me how you made that jump from your role in A&R to being a producer. It, was the same. it is one role. I don't consider it two roles. Okay. Unless someone says to me, would you, do, would you do me a favor, listen to this artist, tell me what you think, blah, blah, and I perform an A&R function. What I do for me, it's one job. I don't consider okay. it two different jobs. So I was an A&R guy. They hired me, mm-hmm. and I started producing records. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And that, by the way, A&R, as people describe it today, has no resemblance to what A&R was during the years prior to 2000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just is a different job right now. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. When we were at Warner Brothers, when we had, when it was, you know, considered like the A&R staff, it was Lenny Warnicker and Ted Templeman and oh, right. uh, myself and Steve Barry and Tommy LaPuma and Michael O'Martian and Russ Teitelman. Mm-hmm. There wasn't one A&R person there. We were all producers. We went about our way. We made our records. You know, Lenny was in with Ricky Lee, and I was in with Steely, and Teddy was in with the Doobies. And every Tuesday morning at 11, they, Mo Austin, who was the CEO, made sure we all got together. And so we A&R'd for a couple hours, and then we went out and we did our work. We had pretty good success on it. I'd say. <laughs> I was, you're, you're mentioning that, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, what an incredible time. Exactly. You know, just, just to have been in that, you know, uh, in that place, in that time, it, it just it seems fascinating to me. Um, you know, uh, you obviously had confidence in Donald and Walt. Obviously, you know, you brought them uh, to Dunhill, but, but um, now you're producing them in their first album, Can't Buy a Thrill. And, and tell me about the dynamic. Was there a, a new dynamic that you had with the two of them, or was it? You know, it had no, shifted it a bit from. New. I, we spent so much time together, right? Um, for, for one thing, thing or another, we, I just spent a, a lot of time with both of them, especially Donald. You know, either by the driving, or we ate, you know, four meals a day, or we were doing the demos, yeah. or they were in the building to do one thing or another. We were, you know, it wasn't like we went out there and we had a boatload of friends, so. We sort of knew each other. Okay. And uh, nothing changed. Going in the studio to make... It was a, it was a very natural course of events. Okay. Not yeah. thought out. You know, okay, Tuesday we're in the studio. This is what we're going to need, and this right. is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So you've already established that your relationship is growing really nicely with, with the guys. So w- what did Gary Katz bring to the table then? If, if you were to answer that question, you know, w- what did you bring to the table? I don't know. know. Really? Whatever the, whatever the creative flow went on in the room, and there was more than three of us. Denny yeah. was part of it, and certainly Roger Nichols yeah. was oh, a yeah. major Absolutely. part of it. Whatever the chemistry, I hate that word, yeah. was going on between the four or five of us, it just worked. Yeah, it was creative. It yeah. just worked, you know. Yeah. Obviously, Donald played keyboards, Walter played bass, and the rest of us, we just made it, everyone made it work. 
Mm-hmm. And I worked as the number one fan, and that helped. I mean, I, I was their number one fan. So when so you go to work every day like that, you come to it with a a different view, maybe. You know, yeah. it, sort of, it sort of breaks my heart, Rick and Gary. It sort of breaks my heart a little bit uh, to hear you, the way you're describing the way the A&R, um, the, the labels used to be back then, a little more creative, a little more personal, a little bit more about... That's, my, that's but, an understatement. You know, yeah. What goes on today is... is yeah. The, one of the reasons the music business has uh, not flourished as they have, obviously, for the downloads and all the rest, but it's for me it starts with, you know, the quality of talent. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are no very few, if any, artists that last beyond one or two singles. The A and R departments make sure to hire, you know, sign the artist who sounds exactly like the person who was top fifteen last week. I mean, it's just a different business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it starts by you know, the people who run the place and are musically inclined. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can correct me if if you think I'm off base here, um, but you know I'm looking at this from a, a fan perspective because I am a huge Steely Dan fan, and uh, you know I've always felt that in in my mind that 72 to 80 period there were like at least three phases of Steely Dan in that seven album stretch, and in my perspective is the first couple of albums were more of a a band approach, and you know they had David Palmer singing on you know a couple tracks on that first album, then came the kind of that infusion of the studio musicians on subsequent albums, and I've always felt that Asian Gaucho era was sort of a, a pinnacle of sorts. I mean, those were for me those were masterpieces for the band, and so were you an integral part of those those types of changes in those different yeah. phases? I mean, integral part in that you know. Everything that happened, you know, happened in front of each other. Yeah, I guess no, my... Like, late, there were no, like, late-night calls that I found out about 10 days later. <laughs> you know, we would all be together. He would be whining about something. Yeah. I would be whining about something. We'd have to do something about it. So it happened at the table, so to speak, that's live. Cool. That's, that's you know cool. What I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's what I... That's what I the way I well, thought you I'll would... give you a good for instance. Okay. Donald wasn't going to be the singer. It never dawned on him that he would have to be a frontman to a band. All of a sudden, we put out a record, do it again, and, you know, we didn't think it was... I mean, we liked what we did. Yeah. I mean, I loved it. Yeah. I can't say we thought it was going to be a hit. It was very long. It had long solos, blah, blah, blah. But it did, and all of a sudden, Joe Lesker said, so when are you out on the road? Out on the road? <laughs> well, that freaked Fagan out. He had never done that, oh, ever, right. ever. Right. Yeah. Ever. So he said, I can't do that. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a front man. I'll play piano. We need a front man. And if we have a front man, he has to sing a couple of songs on the record. Otherwise, it's going to be really weird. Yeah. So I actually took Donald's vocals off Do It Again and Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which broke my heart more than I could tell you now. Mm-hmm and put David on only for the sake of for Donald to be able to say, well, at least he's our lead singer. We have a couple of songs. Yeah, and yeah. there was a moment of conversation that happened again later with Michael McDonald, but right. of Donald saying, well, we'll let them be the singer, and I would say that's out of the question. So yeah. to the question you're asking, you know, how did some things happen? Some things happen because Donald runs the show, and rarely would he use that power, but when he did, he did. Yeah. And other times, I would just say, that's out of the question. Don't even think about it. Wow. Well, I guess I asked that question. I mean, obviously, I knew you were an integral part of that. But I, I guess maybe the the one question I have in the back of my mind is when you did go away from sort of the, the band concept and started bringing in all these you know great studio musicians, um, how, how was that decision made? What, what, was, what was the thinking behind that at, the, at that time? Well, the band, we did Camp I Thrilled. We had a band. Right. We did, uh, when we got to Countdown to Ecstasy, Uh a couple of members of the band in the studio suggested that they also write songs, and maybe it would be fair if they were able to get a couple of songs on the record, Mm -hmm. to which Donald said, no. This this is not a democracy. (laughs) (laughs) And although we did the next record, Countdown Texasy, which I also, I mean, yeah, Countdown Texasy, which I also like, uh-huh. love. Yeah. After that record, Jeffrey had an invite to join the Doobies. Okay. To everybody's advantage and what they wanted, 
he did. He joined the Doobies. And when you say Jeffrey, just for those who don't know, you're talking about Skunk Jeff Baxter. Baxter, Skunk right. Baxter. Yeah. Sorry. And we also used Jim Gordon. Right. In Pretzel Logic. Right. And we had spoken to Jimmy, although Jimmy played a couple of tracks and he played, a, he played uh, um, uh, I can't remember the title. He played, there were two drums on one track. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. But we started to integrate outside musicians. Okay. Once Jeffrey was, once Skunk wasn't there, Walter felt free to play guitar on occasion, not just bass. Okay. He, 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 we had a guitar player. He didn't want to play guitar. Donald and I loved the way Walter played guitar. Uh-huh. But Walter said, we have a guitar player. I can't do that. And so he didn't until Pretzel Logic. Uh, and actually, the song of Pretzel Logic on that album, that was the first thing he played. That's what happened. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, you know, of uh, of all the albums that you produced for Steely Dan, which you know, which one was the I big? Lo- I, it's so hard for me to tell you that because the again, I'm the number one fan, and so out of the fifty whatever more tracks we did, uh-huh. well, I wasn't going to ask you. Maybe which... there's one or so that I don't love, uh-huh. but it's only because of a mix and a and an argument in the studio that I lost. Oh, I see. Well, I wasn't going to ask you which was your favorite. I was going to ask you which was the biggest challenge. Everyone was a challenge because yeah. the music was, there was a challenge in a good way. I don't mean, you know, a hard way, but, oh, sure. you know, the music was challenging. Mm-hmm. And even for the best musicians there are, I would imagine you've, having heard some of the questions, you've read enough to know that there was quite a time doing the solo of Peg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the reason was because there were nine bars in the solo, not eight. Yeah. And some of the best musicians you could think of, from Elliot Randall to Rick Derringer to Robin Ford to Larry Carlton to Dean Parks, right. nobody could play it. <laughs> right. Nobody. <laughs> and Jay Graydon, who we had never worked with before. Right. And was recommended to, you know, because we were running out. We ran out of guys. You're talking about the solo on Peg, right? Yeah. yeah, we ran out of guys to try. He came in, and he played the ninth bar. And we said, great, and that was it. <laughs> Jeez, you got it. <laughs> We've had Jay on the show, show before, too, and he, he's told us that story. So oh, it's exactly what happened. Yeah. We all looked at each other and said, wow, he played the ninth bar. That's great. Here we go, and we're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> no, there's no explaining that. Right, I mean, yeah. These other guys yeah, are right. obviously world-class. <laughs> that was the magic. <laughs> but it was always challenging i tell you what made it challenging. The people we would call to come in, for the most part, also admired the music. Mm-hmm. And as musicians, it was challenging. And they didn't want to leave the room without Donald being satisfied. That's right. So you would have these guys, you know, unbelievable musicians mm-hmm. come in, and whereas they might play a session and just, you know, play it as good as they can, but when it was done, it was done. These guys wouldn't leave the room until they said... I want to be represented by this. Give mm-hmm. me another chance. I can do this. Some one of our past guests here recently just was was telling us that story about. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of who it was, but they were talking about a session uh, they were in with Steely and and I think Jeff Percara was on drums and uh, I don't know who the rest of the band was or what song it was, but apparently Donald they couldn't get it. It wasn't happening. So Donald left. Everybody they just. No, and, no, but the, it was me and Jeffrey and Roger and. Yeah. It was me, Jeffrey. It was at the end of the night. It was me, Jeffrey, and Roger. It was the song Gaucho. That's right. And you guys stuck around and worked throughout the night. Well, we the... played till it was a long. It was. That's my most. That's not just only my favorite track. I'm more proud of that than probably anything else because that was. We we came really close to losing that song, which happened with Donald. Yeah. If we played the song for a while with some of the best musicians in the world yeah. and we didn't get a track, Donald would say, it's the song, it can't be the guys. Wow. And I would lose the song like it never happened. I would go nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, for yeah. instance, you know the song Third World Man on mm-hmm. Gaucho? On, oh, um, yeah, on uh, oh, Gaucho. That's on Gaucho, yeah. Well, we recorded that five years earlier for Asia. Okay. But he didn't like the track well enough. But when we got to Gaucho, we needed another song, so we pulled it out and he rewrote it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a good, that's a good point because that feels like it would have fit with Asia. Yeah, 
<laughs> My Ga- favorite song on that on that record. Yeah, Gaucho is such an amazing body of work. Oh yeah, Just love it. Can't Start to finish. <laughs> yeah. Hey Gary, a while back I was um, I had I was in L.A. and a good friend of ours who's been a past guest, uh, Jeff Lorber, uh, he was at the Village recording and and he invited me to come on over and and after the session, you know, Jeff, Jeff Greenberg gave us a tour and I was able to come to Studio A where you sat and uh, recorded Asia and uh, and that was at the Village. Um, you recorded Asia and Can't Buy a Thrill and. Some other projects there too. I mean, what was special was about the home. village? That was my home. I had the master key of the building. Right. <laughs> yeah, first, yeah. No, I was. I was the first client. Uh huh. Yeah. What What was special about the village? Because it was. It's, uh, it's, it's impossible. It was just a special place in the middle of L.A. Whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. It was owned by Jordy Hormel from Hormel Meat. He was an extremely wealthy guy. Oh, yeah. Okay. And he built the studio for himself. He didn't build it to book every room every minute and make money. So. He built it as a place for himself. He had people around, like Robbie Robertson and different people, yeah. and it became a little sort of artist enclave, although nobody worked there when I did. We were the only client, and um, yeah. it was run by a guy named Dick LaPalm, who's a very well-known right. person in our business, one of the right. leading jazz promotion man in the world, but Dick managed the studio. And when you'd walk in there, which I did every, I lived in there. It was like my home. It was like being home. Yeah. Well, there's a neat story of, um, about, uh, involves you and Dick LaPalm, and, and it, it has to do with um, how you got Wayne Shorter uh, onto the, on Asia. Uh, because the way I, I, I know it, and I've I read uh, a quote from Dick, and and he says basically uh, you came into his office one day, and maybe I'll let you explain it as to what what happened as to how uh, Wayne was not on the album. Then of course how you sort of helped get him. Well, back I would on. go to Dick because as I said, he was like one of the leading jazz people in the country, mm-hmm. promotion marketing wise, and Donald would you know on occasion we'd be in a room and we'd be listening to something and you know. Uh, We'd say, gee, should we do a guitar? Should Denny? Should this? What can we do in this place? I don't want to do another keyboard. So he said, you know what? Phil Woods would sound good on this. Get Phil Woods. And then he would look at me like, you know, okay, go get Phil Woods. So I would, in that case, I picked up the phone. I called. I spoke to Phil at home one night. He came to the studio. He was there 20 minutes. He played Dr. Wu, and he left. And it was, you know, just fabulous. So Mm -hmm. when we got to Asia, we had this long piece. Um not only for someone to play, but we had this long piece for the drummer to play, and most of the drummer, you know, it was a perfect piece for Steve Gadd, right. who we had never worked with. Yeah. And when we were done, you know, we needed a solo. He said, you know, we'd do this good. Donald was saying, you know, Wayne Shorter would be good. You know, it's sort of like a joke. Yeah. You know, like, let's call Duke Ellington or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Except they weren't joking, and they would say, you know, he would say to me, so let's go get Wayne Shorter. Well, I don't know how to get Wayne Shorter. <laughs> and I didn't know Miles or... And Tommy LaPuma wasn't working with them as yet, with right. Miles. So I went to LaPalm. I said, you know, Donald... And Don, LaPalm's number two fan. He's one of my best friends in life. I love him more than I can tell you. And he made a couple of calls, and he called me back. I came to the room. We were only 20 feet apart. And he made it happen. And Wayne came in and was beyond, not only great, obviously, he was such a nice guy, he was so gracious, he he was just a wonderful person to work with for the couple of hours we did. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever I read about uh, about Dick, it it, um, it agrees with what you're saying, is that he was... He was a humble guy. He just loved music. He wanted to make everything work. But uh, I also read this little paragraph, and maybe I'm sure you know uh, about this because you probably are one man that knows everything about Asia. But I read a small little quote of um, uh, from Dick and uh, how he had this. I think there was a second engineer named Lanice Bent. And, Still, my friend, let me see. Yeah, and it was sort of a curious little paragraph that, that that I read because apparently she wanted to get off this gig because she was so annoyed that Walter and Donald had spent six hours discussing two words on Home at Last, you know. And uh, she, she also came, wanted to work with another band. I'll think of the band's name in a minute. <laughs> okay, but the I way this, to, yeah, yeah this, the way the story goes, and she wanted off because uh, she was just like 
six hours to, to argue over two words. And apparently Dick told her, he says, that if you do that, that'll be the biggest mistake that you've ever made. And, uh, and apparently she stayed in, you know. She's one of our buds. <laughs> she wanted to work with Super Tramp. Ah, they were much okay. more fun than we were. We yeah. weren't fun. You know, it, it, it wasn't like, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And all right, right, yeah. Or at least not most of those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Super Tramp, that's why. <laughs> and, but but Lenise is definitely one of the one of the family. Yeah. Gary, we've got a, a, about nine correspondents that, that work here for Inside Music Cast, and they're all over the world, and, and uh, they've sent in a bunch of questions uh, that we wanted to pass by you, or at least a few of these questions anyway. Okay. And Don Brightup, uh, who's one of our correspondents, also in a band called Monkey House, he wants to know if uh, you have any additional information about uh, the noise reduction tech snafu that almost wrecked the Katie Lidemaster. We, um, we, we, between Walter and Denny and Roger... Because Donald and I can barely plug a lamp in, and if the other guy saw us trying to plug it in, they probably would stop us. But Walter, Denny, and Roger were thoughtful, audiophile, whatever they could do kind of guys, and we depended on them for that. We had used Dolby on Pretzel Logic. Okay. We didn't like something about it. Walter didn't like it. Roger didn't like something. You know, Donald and I didn't hear it, but they didn't like something. So Roger said we should try this new noise reduction system called DBX. Right. So we right. did. We but the ABC allowed us to build because they wanted it. We spent so much money in the studio. I mean, we just lived in the studio. They wanted us to work at ABC Studios, but the little studio they had, which worked really nice, that was Steve's studio. And every day, 11 in the morning till six, 5, 6 at night, that was Steve's studio. And it was much smaller than some of the needs we had. So they let us oversee Roger building a really beautiful room on the other side of the floor that actually connected. So when you open the glass sliding doors, you actually had one huge room. But um, when we went into the new room, Roger said, and they let us do anything. We bought this ridiculously expensive Bosendorfer piano for Donald and whatever it was going to take to get us to record that. And Roger said, you don't want to use Dolby, we'll use this DBX. So we did. And when we were done, which is a long story, I mean, it was... It was a painful album to, to mix. Yeah. But when we were done, it was the, we thought it was the best sounding thing we'd ever done. And even the records thereafter were not as good as those moments of Katie Lied when, because Denny and Roger went out and bought these Magna Plana panel speakers and they had eight of them in front of the room. It was like being in the finest sounding, you know, concert hall you could imagine. Jeez. That's what Denny and Roger and Walter would do. They, you know, they cared about that. When we finished it, it was just great. Mm-hmm. So when we went to mix, which was a painful experience because we had to lock up two machines. Yeah. Because they, you know, we got more tracks, more tracks, but we didn't realize the process of what it meant to lock up two machines <laughs> until you got to mixing, which was extraordinarily painful. Right. When the record was mixed, finally, it was took a long time. One night, we're listening, and Donald says, Do you hear that weird thing on bad sneakers? And Roger said, No, what is it? He said, Listen to this. I play a chord, and I hold the chord down, and instead of fading, it's crescendoing. Oh, wow. Exactly. Our point exactly. Oh, wow. Well, as it turns out, of course, he was right. And what it was, was the DBX system did not decode the mixes the way they were encoded, and there was some sort of weird compression going on in decoding. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, Donald, I I will save you the pain of the next five days and just say at the end of it, Donald said, well, we have three choices. We can throw the record out, which I'm inclined to do, which I, you know, had a stroke just hearing the words. Jeez. <laughs> oh. 
we could remix it, which uh-huh. I want no part of, or we could put it out the way it is. And that, well, what the step in between is we, Roger Walter and I flew to Boston one night at midnight, and they picked us up from the DBX factory, and some guy with a jeweler's glass who looked like he had taken a trip the night before opened up the box, and he had a greenie out, a greenie screwdriver, and he said, put your tape on, and as it was playing, he would, like, turn the screw and say, does it sound better now? And we knew we were fucked. Oh, God. <laughs> and literally, and we got back on a plane, like, two hours later. We went right Jeez. from there to the to the airport, and they put wings on it, on the module. So, you know, if we wanted to tweak yeah. it to get it to, you know, it was a joke. They uh, didn't know how it worked. Oh, my gosh. So I have to say that I prevailed, although I think Walter... The other, some of the others were on my side, but I prevailed and said we're putting it out. We're not throwing it away. So what we hear on the Katie Lyde album now is is with the DBX and the crescendo yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's still. I mean, without knowing that, it's still not a bad sounding album, and it's it sounds. No, it's a great sounding album. Yeah. Yeah. But not as great as it was before that. It was really spectacular. Wow. wow. By our standards, even. Yeah, interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that story. Hey, Don also wanted to ask you about your first sessions working with Jeff Percaro, and I think he was only about 20 years old at the time. And he I think wasn't he had, 20, he was 17. 17, and he, I think he had just, he was gigging with Sonny and Cher, but he quit those gigs to come and, and do some tracks for, uh, to, to work with Donald and Walter, right? No, that's not, oh, some of that part of that sentence is true, and uh-huh. some of it isn't. Um, he was he was with David Page. They were sort of like a team. Right, right. And and they were on the Sonny and Cher show, and I know Jeffrey was less than 18, because when he eventually went to go and tour with us, Aileen and Joe had a signed parent card, because he wasn't quite 18. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and the night that I met Jeffrey was at the Cherokee Ranch in uh, Canoga Park, near Manson's Ranch, yeah. where we did all the pretzel logic. And we were trying to do a song called Night by Night. Right. And Donald said, I can't play this steady enough. These, again, not only pre-computers, com- you know, pre-anything like that to be able to fix things. So he said, I, you know, I just can't play this steady enough. And either can Jimmy Harder. So Denny said, well, I know someone who's, you know, these two guys would be really good. Well, we said, okay, bring them out. And Jeffrey and David came out. It was about midnight one night. And there was a little noose that used to hang over the doorway of the studio <laughs> at the ranch. And the first thing I heard him say was, this is a tough room. <laughs> and that's how I met Jeffrey. Interesting. Yeah. Well, just quickly, I want to uh, turn to the topic of Donald Fagan's Nightfly. And tell me about the process. I'm assuming it's probably fairly similar from a working process, but... Uh, how was this process producing this album compared to any of the previous Steely albums? I mean, with... with no, Walter. Well, yeah, no Walter, right. With, no, no, well, that's not a minor thing. No Walter. Yeah. So well, what this... it wasn't not so much that everything, you know, that was, you know, that Walter contributed in such a way that Donald couldn't make a record. Right. But there is a, a bond between the two of them. Right. That obviously still exists. And so when we would work... We all rely, like, I always know, I don't have to worry about the microphone. Walter's going to do that. Mm-hmm. Walter's going to make sure that it's the right mic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or, I don't have to think about that, you know. Walter would do this. Well, there wasn't Walter there anymore, and that was much more for Donald than me. He was his, you know, I mean, I don't want to use the word soulmate, but well, he was his... His left hand to his right hand, you know, that sort of thing. He was, yeah, they were, I mean, they tied at, at both at all six hips. Yeah. have been for years. Mm-hmm. When Walter wasn't in the room, it just took on a new method of working, uh, you know, emotionally, whatever way you want to put it. It wasn't like we'd someone would say, well, where's Walter? But when certain things would happen, we realized, you know, we're doing this now. Right. I mean, Walter is a, obviously a major force in what occurred. Mm-hmm. If if that was such an integral part of you know having Walter or having that association with Walter for so many years, you know what was his motivation for creating a solo album? Then I mean I mean I obviously think it was just time and just, yeah. you know one of those times, and you know he 
I, I don't want to talk to Donald about that, but right. it was just a time where we he wanted to do this, and that's what we did. Yeah. So, so in a sense, it was more of a challenge, the, the, producing this record. It, it was more of a challenge for Donald than it was for me. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brian Pearson, another uh, yeah, correspondent for Inside Music Cast up in Chicago, he, he, uh, he asks, you know, once this album was wrapped, once you guys had it in the can— um, what were your feelings about it at that point, you know, before putting it out? Did you did you just have uh, an inkling that this was going to be a classic? Are we talking about Nightfly? The Nightfly, yeah. You know, I never, we never, I can't talk for Donald. I never really thought in those terms. I generally thought in terms of each track. Uh-huh. You know, is, is there anything on here that is not as good as we can do? Yeah. And, you know, I loved the record. It, it had a bit of a different feel. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um. You know, I just loved it. I mean, I loved the songs. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm, you know, Fagan's number one fan, so to mm-hmm. be able to make music with him, as Walter said to me one night, some years later, very late at night, you and I will never work with anyone as talented as that again. And that's about the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, moving ahead a little bit, we're going to touch on some other things here. Um, okay. uh, we'll, we'll be soon uh, connecting with Mark Jordan for an interview coming up. And uh, Oh, cool. I had lunch with him a couple of weeks ago. Did you? Yeah, well, that, that's cool. We're, we're so excited to have him on. We, there's so much that we want to ask him. In 78, you, you produced uh, one of his first albums, Mannequin. Yeah, and uh, tell us about working with Mark. You've known him for a long time, and you had tons of... I didn't of... know him for a long time when we made the record. We okay. had met. Uh-huh. Okay, right. Um, I was at uh, Warner Brothers. I was working at Warner Brothers, and Mark... Uh, somebody sent me Mark's music. I liked it a lot. Um, uh, one thing, you know, led to another. We met, and we made this record at The Village. And... Um, you know, Jeffrey played, and all the guys chipped in and played, and Donald did some playing, and um, I think Mark's a great artist. Yeah, He's yeah. a great writer and artist. Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> hey, uh, Gary, we're, we're just about wrapped up. We've got a few more questions. Do you have time for a few more? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Well, you know, just in looking at uh, your body of work throughout your career, um, Gary, you, you seem to to be blinded to, j- to genres. I mean, having, you know, worked with rock, R&B, folk, you know, jazz, even even rap with artists like Tupac. How do you choose uh, who you work with, and how, how do you evaluate if you can contribute to someone's musical creativity as a producer? I don't know. I don't think about it. It's pretty. It's a pretty natural event. Mm-hmm. Um, if I like the music, you know, if I like it, I'll I'll work on it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. Care. I mean, I like a lot of different things. My main criteria is: can I tap my foot? Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what genre. I, I, I've always sort of been genre blind. Yeah. Hey, another question comes from Barney Hurley, and actually Barney was the one who uh, set us up with this interview with you today. Um, he's in a, a really amazing band called Samuel Purdy. Uh, they put out one album in 1999, and you should hear it sometime. Uh, I don't know if you've if you've heard it, but uh, Barney himself he's a, he's a huge Steely Dan fan, and, and uh, this this album just is it was it was like I said it was released in '99. And uh, I think their sort of moniker for their album is Right Album, Wrong Time, because it sounds like something that came straight out of the, yeah. the late 70s. It has a Steely Dan, Doobies, Hollow Notes sort of vibe to it. It's just fantastic. Great production. He had Elliot Shiner engineer it. It was really wonderful. But, I um, spoke to him this afternoon. What's he's that? my buddy. Oh, Elliot? I spoke to Elliot this afternoon. He's my buddy. He's, uh, he was he's, a big part of stuff we did, too. He's somebody I'd love to get on the show as Absolutely. well. At some point, so. Oh, just send me... An email or send me something to connect you and him, and I'll get it to happen. I appreciate that. Great, yeah. Well, Barney asks uh, about producing Diana Ross's album Ross, which was released back in 1983, and he wanted to know about your experiences working with her. She was very nice to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, really nice to me. She's um, demanding of the people around her. Um, she was very nice to me and the people that um, worked with her. Uh, it was, I think, the, what's the word? It was the worst record I ever produced. <laughs> the worst? Yeah, I didn't do a good job. And what, what, well, explain, why, do you, why, you, why don't you think you did a good job on that one? It's really not my forte. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I related to Richard when Richard and I were partners when I first started. Rich, Richard is really, really good with artists finding songs 
shaping those songs, a la Point to Sisters and so forth, taking songs, shaping them with the band <clears throat> and the artist, and making a record. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's terrific at that. Mm-hmm. I'm not so good at that. I'm really good with artists who have their own music, and I can get the best out of them. I don't want to shape the music. I don't really want to have much to do with that. I just want to make what they do be as good as it can be, and where there's a suggestion of three, you know, I'll obviously make it. Um, And in Diana's case, it was like finding songs from various places and having to create music for her to sing to. I, I didn't do a good job in that. Well, what did uh, I'm curious to know. You don't feel like you did a good job there, but but what did Diana think about it? I don't know if she was being polite or not. Oh, I it see. wasn't a good record. Okay. It was so in Diana Ross's world, it was not a good record. Okay. All not right. because of her. I see. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of of artists, um, Gary, that uh, that brought their music to the table, and and you basically helped you know sign these guys, Shaka Khan, you know Jimmy Buffett. Jim Croce, um, you know, Dire Straits, Prince, Ricky Lee, Christopher Cross, you know, and, you know, in your opinion, you know, when you cross paths with these art- artists, you know, is it really about luck, timing, fate that uh, where artists really get that break? Is that what it really comes down to? You know, there are so many ways it happens. If you have the right lawyer or manager mm-hmm. who has entree to places that can get you signed, yeah. you know, I'd rather have that than luck. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really, there's no, no one way. It happens, you know, every way you can think of. Here's a good one. So I made a record with a woman named Rosie Vella. She's a wonderful artist. Okay. Right. A record for A&M. She's a world-famous model. Right. Mm-hmm. Rosie, Rosie's just a unique, wonderful artist. Yeah. So I met her in New York, and we were talking about you know, music, maybe making a record. And she said her boyfriend was, at the time, Peter Max. Okay. The okay. Right. Yeah. She said, Peter and I are going to go to Barbados for a week with Jerry Moss and his wife, Annie. I said, cool. When you come back, give me a call. We'll pick it up again. She gets home about a week later, and she calls me, and she said, we have a deal. I said, what do you mean? She said, I was sitting on the sand... And with my headphones and my little Casio, and I was playing, and Jerry walked by, and he said, let me hear it, and he made me a deal on the sand. So, how do you know how it's going to happen? I guess you never know in this business. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. There is no way or guys would follow the one way. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, of Rosie Vela, that was actually another question that Barney Hurley had in in. You know, obviously you produced her album in 86, but uh, Barney's curious to know if she ever recorded a follow-up album, and if so... We did a follow-up album that they didn't put out that was terrific. Okay. Interesting. And never saw the light of day, huh? No. That was a really great album. There was company politics. Sometimes it's great to be signed by the guy who owns the company, as in the M of Mm A&M, and sometimes it really works against you because nobody in the building wants to touch it for fear of making a mistake. Wow. Yeah, right. Right. And uh, one, more, one more thought or one more question we have for you, and it's something uh, you mentioned to us uh, uh, before we started the interview, but a, a current project you involved, uh, you're involved with is an artist by the name of uh, Evie Archer. And I've, I am working with Evie, who I think is just a really gifted young artist, uh-huh. um, great writer, mm-hmm. terrific singer. Uh, we've just finished uh, a couple of tracks. We made a really cool be something that would dawn on me that she had a really cool holiday record and we went in quickly and did it and it came out great. That's awesome. Um, I think Evie's I think Evie's is, is one of those artists, you know, that falls in the you know, she's not gonna make a single tonight and have it fall off the truck, but she'll make music that'll last for a while. Very so cool. She's in that world where I just yeah. think she's a gifted artist and people who want to hear us should go to Facebook.com, Evie Archer Music, and listen to her. Definitely. Really definitely good. pass that on. Absolutely. Um, well, I, we're pretty much wrapped up, Gary. We really, really appreciate all the time you've spent with us. Um, but I, I just wanted to ask you, just looking ahead, you know, I know you've got this project with Evie, and uh, is there, are there any other projects that you have coming up that you can uh, share with us? Uh, you know, there are a couple of projects I'm talking about. Um, 
There's another girl who's in the process of writing and creating material with some friends of mine in in uh, London, actually. Her name is uh, Shana Lee. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, one... I'm not really good at doing more than one thing at a time, and yeah. actually, as it turns out, not a, everybody's not ready, but Evie and I are working pretty closely together, and I really am committed to helping Evie. I think she's great. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Well, next time you're in uh, our neck of the woods, um, give us a buzz. Maybe we can have some I coffee sometime. I definitely let you know when I landed <laughs> Indy International, which they never should have built, and left the other one alone. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like the new airport? It's a pain in the ass that airport. The other one was unbelievably convenient. Oh yeah, in and out. I mean, it was a terrific little airport. Now it's like it's like going to JFK in Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> we want to be big so bad. <laughs> well, you are. you are. Hey, thanks, Gary. Thank You're you. You're welcome. So much. I'm glad to have a good time with you guys. All right, take care. Thanks. All right, bye bye. Bye bye. Special thanks to Gary Katz for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unilon for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.